church. Uh, if that's what you want and that's what you desire, you want everything to be perfect, you're, you're, this isn't where you should be. This isn't about perfect people. This is about a perfect Savior, though. And a perfect Savior that has reached down to imperfect people uh, and has saved us and redeemed us. Listen, it's great to be in God's house. It's wonderful to preach and to pray and to encourage one another and to sing together and to listen to others sing uh, the songs of the faith. Yeah, but I know today, as excited as I am to worship today, I know some of you are tired. You are tired, and it's natural you are tired because it is Spring Forward Sunday. Spring Forward uh, Sunday. And so some of you are really tired today because you lost your hour of sleep and you're grumpy, and you're ugly. Well, ugly, that wasn't supposed to be in there, was it? Well, I can't help the ugly part. It's between you and God. You are grumpy today, and you uh, are tired today. But listen, some of you are tired today not just because you lost an hour of sleep. Some of you are tired today because you are going through major battles. We've had people in our church, uh, one lady here today who lost a loved one in her family uh, this past week. We have others, as we have mentioned, who have uh, unknown illnesses going on or they know a little bit and they're waiting to find out more. And we have others that are fighting battles uh, of temptation in your life and you are tired. You are tired. They say when a person becomes president, they really find out what it means to get tired. Uh, if you've ever looked at pictures of presidents when they went into office, and then after they've held that office for four or eight years, it is amazing, uh, it is unreal how much a president ages in just a couple of years. And we know that's because of the responsibility that goes with that job that presidents age so much. Now, perhaps no president embodies uh, what uh, the stress of the job will do to you more than Abraham Lincoln Abraham Lincoln was president from the get-go. The nation very quickly found itself in a civil war, and for almost the entirety of his presidency, the first four years, he was leading the, the Union, the Northern Army, in this great contest. And it became apparent. They thought at first that the Civil War would be a quick war. Both sides thought that. Both sides thought this thing would be over in no time, and then it became apparent it wasn't going to be over in no time also became apparent that weapons had advanced to a point that although uh, many of the armies, many of the battles were fought according to old tactics, the weapons had gotten better and more sophisticated and so there was lots and lots of loss of life. At Gettysburg, at Gettysburg the Union forces won a very important victory. Very important victory at Gettysburg. The South lost the battle that day. Robert E. Lee faced uh, what would become the, the turning defeat in the war. But although the North had won, they, listen to this, they had 23,000 casualties. The North won the battle, but they had over 23,000 Union casualties. The nation was tired. Abraham Lincoln was tired. But he knew the job was only halfway done. We'll leave the lights up, but I want you to listen to the address that Abraham Lincoln gave at Gettysburg. It's very short, but it's very powerful. Abraham Lincoln's tired. The nation is tired. And this is what he said at Gettysburg when he showed up after the battle. 
Abraham Lincoln uttered those lines, the last full measure of devotion. The last full measure of devotion. That is what the soldiers gave. The nation was tired, tired of fighting, and they found themselves in the middle of a war, but to encourage the men to continue, to basically encourage himself to continue to lead the Union to victory, Abraham Lincoln reminded at the Gettysburg address that it was going to take, and it had taken from those men, the last full measure of devotion. We're not engaged in a civil war of human arms, but we are engaged in a battle. The Lord Jesus Christ describes uh, the battle that we are engaged in as a conflict between uh, our uh, God the Father and His purpose and plan for us and the enemy, the devil, and His plan between sin and between righteousness. This battle between sin and righteousness has uh, been raging for some time and we know that Jesus has secured the victory Uh, In some ways you could say the great Gettysburg of the spiritual battle has been fought. And at the cross, Jesus has secured victory for us. If you believe that victory is found at the cross, say amen. Victory has been won there. And yet in each of our personal lives, until that moment we see Jesus face to face, the enemy still attacks He still uh, deploys His tricks. Sin still pulls against us. And so we find ourselves in a battle. And at times in this battle, we find ourselves very, very, very tired. You're a parent that over and over again has tried to help your child make the right choices and godly choices, and they don't, and it makes you tired. Uh, You have over and over again struggled with some sin in your life. And it seems that it will not let you go and you are tired. You have poured yourself into a class or a ministry at church and it just doesn't seem to be doing exactly what you want and you are tired. This morning I know there are people that are tired because we have lost an hour of sleep. There's also a tiredness that we face that goes far beyond that. This morning I want you to see the danger of compromising in that moment of tiredness. What the enemy wants, what the enemy desires when you are tired is to get you to compromise, to get you uh, to give in a little bit, to get you to start doing halfway measures instead of all that Jesus desires for you. So there is a danger When we are partway completed with the journey or partway completed with the task, there is this danger that we will not finish what has been started. Or we will veer off on another path. We will move from the path that God has for us and we will move into an ungodly area. This morning I want you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 9. 2 Kings chapter 9. And we're going to read this morning of a king, King Jehu, who starts off really good, gets anointed uh, by God to be the king, and Jehu gets off on a really good start, on a really good foot, and he does some really great things, but as times go on, Jehu begins to slack, and Jehu begins to compromise, and Jehu begins to not complete the work that God, through his prophet Elisha, had anointed him for. 
So let's begin in 2 Kings chapter 9. And we're going to read a little bit today, so I want you to, to dig in, uh, and I want you to listen really, really close. By the way, let me give you a heads up. There's a lot of bloodshed going to go on in this next chapter and a half. A lot. In fact, in fact, Friday night, before I went to bed, I was looking over my sermon, and I was reading through this passage. And about an hour, hour and a half, my wife can tell you this, about an hour, an hour and a half after I got done reading back over this Friday night, bad idea because a lot of people die. And I went to sleep, and I had the wildest dreams you could possibly imagine. All right? So this is intense. Intense. So listen to what happened. Second. Kings chapter 9. Elisha the prophet called one of the children of the prophets and said unto him. So you know, we've we've read before Elisha in the school of the prophets. And so Elisha gets uh, somebody probably from this school of the prophets. Elisha gets him and he says unto them, what's he say? He says, gird up your loins. Now that's the equivalent in the Old Testament of put your running shorts on. Because you know, they wore those long robes, a lot of them, and if you had to get somewhere quick, they would gird up their loins. And that just meant they would pull their robe up and they would hitch it up over their knees so they could run to where they needed to get to go. So that's equivalent to saying, put on some running clothes and get ready to run to where you need to be. And so Elisha the prophet called one of the children of the prophets, and he said unto him, gird up your loins and take this box of oil. All right, an oil, oil for anointing. Take this box of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when you come there, when you come thither, when you get there, look out there Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and make him rise up from among his brethren and carry him to an inner chamber. So he says, you're going to run and you're going to take this anointing oil and when you get there, you're going to find Jehu. And he's going to be sitting around with his boys. He and his his men are going to be sitting together. But I want you to get him, and I want you to take him away from the other men, take him into an inner room. All right? So he he tells him, you go, and you get him, and you take him to the inner chamber. Verse 3, then take the box of oil and pour it on his head and say, thus saith the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. He says, I want you to take him, and you need to say this just right, because he needs to know who this anointing comes from. Thus saith the Lord. And the what's the Lord said, I have anointed you king over Israel. And he says, then open the door and flee, run, and tarry not. So the young man, even the young man, the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead, and when he had come, behold, the captains of the host were sitting. And he said, I have an errand to you, O captain. And Jehu said, Unto which? Which one out of all of us? Which one? And he said, To you, O captain. And so Jehu arose and went into the house. And he poured the oil on his head and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel, and you shall smite the house of Ahab your master. Now Ahab had been a wicked king, and his wife Jezebel had been a wicked king queen. And they had persecuted Elijah. Elijah who came before Elisha, they had persecuted Elijah and they had done horrible things to him and God had said that he was going to judge their house. Well, now we know how that judgment's going to occur because Jehu has just been anointed and he has said, you're going to deal with Ahab. You're going to deal with this. So, so verse 7, he says, you shall smite, you shall destroy the house of Ahab your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants the prophets and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. That was the wicked queen 
there who was with the wicked king Ahab. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off Ahab from him. Uh, even the one, and this, this relates to a prophecy going to happen, you wonder why does he say this? He says, even the one that's pissing against the wall, and you'll see that in a minute. He says, all of them. And him that is shut up and left in Israel, I'm going to wipe him out. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and like the house of Abasha, the house of Ahijah. He's going to wipe him out. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the port. He said dogs are going to eat Jezebel. They're going to eat her. That is now... You ever been around a child that is afraid of dogs? Afraid of dogs? Well, he says here, he says, these are going to be wild dogs. And they're going to eat her flesh. This judgment is coming. Verse 10, the dog shall eat Jezebel, the portion of Jezreel. They'll do this in Jezreel. And there shall be none to bury her. And so he then opened the door and he fled. The guy made the announcement. He gave the word from God. And then he ran away. So then Jehu came forth to the servants of the Lord and said unto him, Is all well? Wherefore come you this, where, why did this mad guy come to you? Why did this guy run in here with this box and do whatever he did back there and run away? What in the world's going on? And he said unto them, you know the man and his communication. And they said, well, tell us now. Verse 12, tell us. And he said, well, and he said this and that. He said, he said this to me and he said this. What he said was, thus saith the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then they hasted very quickly. How do they respond? This is very important. Because if they respond negatively, Jehu's in trouble. Because if Ahab finds out that somebody has said he's king, Ahab's going to come from him. So what are his friends going to do? Are they going to stick with him? Or are they going to say, dude, that's, we're not going to have anything to do with that because that's going to bring down the king's judgment on us. Not Ahab, but Ahab's son will, will come get us. And he says, are you going to, what are you going to do? And so look what, he, look what he says. Look what they do. They said, hey, tell us what happened. Then verse 13, they hasted or very quickly they took every man in his garment and put it under him on the top of the stairs, and they blew the trumpets, and what did they say? Jehu is king. Jehu is king. He's been anointed king. That's very important. The way his journey gets started, it's anointing by God. So Jehu, verse 14, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshah, conspired against Joram, and Joram had kept Ramoth-Gilead, he and all Israel, because of Hazel, king of Assyria. We read about Hazel last week. Hazel was the Syrian who murdered his king, and now Hazel is rolled in out of Syria into Israel, and he's killing people. And so Joram, King Joram, who's from the line of Ahab, they're having to fight and defend, right? And but what, what, so what's Joram been doing? Well, verse 15, King Joram had returned to heal in Jezreel of the wounds which the Syrians had given him when he had fought with Hazel, king of Syria. So Jerome, he, he's wounded. Uh, he's healing up. And Jehu said, if it be... Your minds, then let none go further nor escape out of the city to go to tell Jezreel. We can't let anybody leave because we don't want the king to know that I've now been anointed the new king and we're going to have to deal with him. So Jehu rode in a chariot and went to Jezreel for Joram lay there. And Hazai, king of Judah, was come down to see Joram. So you got Israel and you got Judah. And both of them are there. Verse 17, there stood a watchman on the tower in Jezreel, and he spied her. He saw the company of Jehu as they came, and he said, I see a company. And Joram said, take a horseman and send it to meet him. And let him say, is it peace? Wants to know, are you coming from peace or coming to battle? So there went one on horseback to meet him, and said, thus saith the king, is it peace? And Jehu said, what have you to do with peace? Turn you beside me. Get away from me. And the watchman told, saying, the messenger came to them 
but he comes not again. So they're, they're in the city wondering what in the world is going on. What is this guy coming in the chariot for? What's, what's the deal? Verse 19, then he sent out a second on horseback, which came to them and said, thus saith the king, is it peace? And Jehu answered and said, what have you to do with peace? Turn you behind me. And the watchman told, the guy sitting on the watchman, he's seen all this. And he says, hey, this guy went out too, but he's not coming back. He's not coming back. He's, he's, he's getting with Jehud's people. What's going on? And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshah, for he drives furiously. Jehu's a fighter and he's a warrior. And he is all out on his chariot and he's heading to take the kingdom from Joram. Verse 21, Joram said, Make ready, and his chariots were made ready. And Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out each in his chariot, and they went out against Jehu, and they met him in the portion of Nebuth, the, the Jezreelite. And it came to pass when Joram saw Jehu that he said, Is it peace, Jehu? And he answered and said, What peace? So long as the whoredoms or the wickedness of your mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many. See, if you know about Jezebel, she led the nation into deep sin. Deep, deep sin. And she killed the prophets of God. And now her son says, can we have peace? And he says, there can be no peace with you and your people. Verse 23, and Joram turned his hands and fled. He fled. Yells out, there's treachery. Verse 24, Jehu then drew a bow with his full strength and he smote Jehoram between his arms and the arrow went out his heart. So it goes all the way through. And he sunk down in his chariot. And then they take the field. And then blood is shed. And then you get down to verse 28. And there's more blood that comes. And there's this vengeance that's coming for Ahab. And then verse 30. When Jehu was come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. The queen heard of it. And she painted her face and tried her head and looked out a window. And as Jehu entered in at the gate, she said, had Zimra peace who slew his master? She goes, what, what's going to happen here? And he lifted up his face the window and said, who is on my side? Who? So he's, she's in the window up top. Imagine this, Jezebel's up top. And Jehu's down at the bottom, the new king. And he says, who's on my side? There's a time of deciding. There's a time of choosing. If you're on the Lord's side today, say amen. Whose side? There looked after him two or three eunuchs, and he said, throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses, and he trod her underfoot. And when he was come in, he did eat and drink and said, go see now this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. He goes, well, at least we'll bury her because she's a king's daughter, even if, even if what she did was wicked and evil. And they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hand because she'd been eaten. Verse 10, what does he do next? And Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria and Jehu wrote letters and sent to Samaria. So he's got a big problem because Ahab had a lot of kids. He was doing a lot of fooling around with a lot of different women. 70 sons and he's got to do something about them. And so Jehu wrote letters and sent to Samaria and to the rulers of Jezreel, the elders to them that brought up Ahab's children. And he said, as soon as this letter comes to you, see that your master's sons are with you and there are with you chariots and horses and a fenced city also and armor and let even out, out the best and meet us. Get, get the best of your master's sons and set him on your father's throne and fight for your master's house. But they were afraid. Why are they afraid? Because they said, oh, there are two kings. There are two kings, and what, what are we going to do? There are now 
two kings. And so verse 6, then he wrote a letter the second time and said, If you be mine, and if you will hearken to my voice, take you the heads of the men, your master's son, and come to Jezreel by this time tomorrow. And the king's sons, being 70 persons, were with the great men of the city, which brought them up. And so he gets all these sons together. And it came to pass, the letter came, that they took the king's sons and they slew them. They killed them. Now he gets all these guys together, all these great fighters, warriors, and they kill these 70 sons of Ahab. And it goes on. And you can read this later. And it just gets really, really graphic. And so verse 11, Jehu slew all that remained of the house of Ahab and Jezreel, all his great men and his kinsfolk and his priests. He killed not just the sons, but all of the great warriors that had been with Ahab, and he killed all of the priests, and these are priests of Baal. He kills all of them. Everybody who'd been a leader with Ahab, he wipes them all out. And he rose and he departed to Samaria. And then it goes on even more. And then you get to verse 16, and he meets up with this other guy who's very zealous for the Lord's work, and he says to him, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So they made him ride in his chariot. Now if you think this is like, why would God allow this to happen? Go back and read what Ahab and Jezebel did. Read about the sacrifices. Read uh, about the, 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 the false religions that involved child sacrifice that Jezebel was leading the people into and taking them down that road. These were two very, very wicked people. And the people that had helped them had been very, very wicked indeed and then look at verse 21 all right look what else he does he's really zealous he's he's really carrying out what god wants him to do verse 21 and jehu sent through all israel and all the worshipers of baal came these false idols this false god he got all of them together he got all of them together see what he did is he told everybody if you read the rest of the passage he tells them i love baal too and I'm a great worshiper of Baal. And, and if you thought Ahab worshipped Baal, we're going to worship Baal even more than we ever did before. But it was a trick. And you're going to see, he, he tricked them. He gets all the great worshipers of Baal together. Verse 21, And they came to the house of Baal, and the house of Baal was full from one end to another. So they get in this place of worship of Baal, and it's full from one to another. And he said unto him that was over the vestry, Bring forth the vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. So they bring out all this stuff for the worship of Baal. And, of Baal. and Jehu went... And he gets everybody together, verse 24, and they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. And Jehu appointed fourscore men without. He gets all these men outside of this great temple to Baal. And he says, if any of the men whom I have brought into your hands escape, he that lets him go, his life shall be for the life of him. He says, you are not to let any of these worshipers escape. And it came to pass as soon as he had made an end of the offering of the burnt offering that Jehu said to the guard and the captains, go in and slay them and let none come forth. And they smote them with the edge of the sword and the guard and the captains cast them out and went to the city of the house of Baal. And they brought forth images out of the house of Baal and they burned them. They put an end to this idol worship. Remember, Israel had a covenant relationship with God. God had brought them out of Egypt. God had saved them. They were slaves in Egypt. And He took this people that was no people and He made them into a great people. And now they're leaders. And those in authority have led them to worship these false gods and do these horrible things. And finally, finally Jehu has risen up and he has destroyed and brought a, brought a crushing blow to the worship of Baal. Verse 28, and Jehu destroyed Baal out of Israel. He really did. He put an end 
uh, to the widespread worship of Baal. How be it? From the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who made Israel to sin. Je- oh, this is where it gets unfortunate. He does a great job. We see how zealous he is. But then it says, unfortunately, Jehu departed not from after them, from after the sin of Israel. What did he do? He allowed the golden calves that were in Bethel and that were in Dan, he allowed them to remain. That was other false worship. He, he, he dealt with Ahab and he dealt with Baal. But he's, I mean, he's probably tired. He's probably worn down. He's done a lot. He's accomplished a lot. But unfortunately, he did not finish the job. Verse 30, The Lord said unto Jehu, Because you have done well in the executing that which is right in my eyes, and have done unto the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your children of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. For he departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, which made Israel to sin. For some weeks we've been looking at the life of Elisha. And we have seen Elisha time and time again. We have have seen him fulfill his prophetic calling. And if you've been with us in this sermon series, it doesn't matter if it's a rich person or a poor person. It doesn't matter if it's a person in authority or if it's a widow who has nothing to offer. Elisha is the same in that he does what God wants him to do with each and every person that he admits. There's no person too big or too small for the mercy that God can give. And Elisha does acts of mercy with all kinds of people. In fact... We've seen that Elisha showed mercy unto even pagans. We've seen the story of Naaman who dipped in the river seven times. And he's not even a Jew. He wasn't even a worshiper of the true God. And yet, because he came and because he acted on faith, Elisha has shown the grace of God, the mercy of God to him as well. It doesn't matter who it is. Elisha has been faithful to show God's mercy. If you're glad that there's enough mercy of God for all of us, say amen. With Elisha, they've all experienced God's mercy. He has faithfully, Elisha has faithfully pursued his calling, faithfully done what God called him to do. But unfortunately, not everyone walks the path of Elisha. There are others. And today we see one of these others. We see in Jehu a man who starts strong, but he does not complete the task that God had given him to finish. Jehu compromises. And it doesn't just hurt Jehu, but as you will later see, if you keep reading through the book of 2 Kings, you will see that it hurts and affects the whole nation and it affects Jehu's family. Dads, when you compromise your walk with the Lord, it will affect your wife, your spouse, it will affect your children, it will affect your church. Dads, it will affect everybody. Moms, when you compromise your walk with the Lord, you neglect your walk of the Lord. You don't, he, that's Jehu's problem. He didn't walk in the way of the Lord. Moms, when you neglect the walk of the Lord, believe me, if you compromise, well, I'll do this, but I'm not getting into that because I've already done this. You compromise that work, it's going to affect everybody. When pastors compromise, it hurts everybody. When church leaders compromise, it hurts everybody. And so this morning, I know that some of you are tired and not just from losing an hour of sleep. You are tired in this, uh, this struggle, this battle that we are in. Jehu is a reminder that compromise 
Compromise is not an option for those of us committed to Jesus Christ. Now I want to point out three things about Jehu. And two of these are really good, and then we get the third thing that's not so good. And this will help you in your own struggle and your own battle for faithfulness. First this morning, we see Jehu's anointing. We see the anointing of Jehu, and there's something really specific about this anointing. Go back to chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. Look at verse 2 and 3 in chapter 9. Very important about this anointing. It says, he told the guy, he said, when you get there, Elisha said, when you get there, you take this oil. When you get there, get to Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshah, and go in and make him arise up from among his brethren and carry him to an inner chamber. And then take the box of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus saith the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Three times. Did you notice that in chapter 9? Three times that phrase is repeated, Thus saith the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Thus saith the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Thus saith the Lord. This anointing was not done by the other soldiers that were around him. This anointing did not come from this young man that had run there with the box of oil. The anointing did not just come from the oil that was there. The anointing had come from God. And like Jehu, the calling that God has on your life, the calling that God has given to trust and follow and obey Jesus, this life is only possible because God gives His anointing to make it possible. God gives His Word and God gives His Spirit to call us, to woo us, to show us who Jesus is so that we may respond in faith. Just as Elisha sent a servant to call Jehu to his divine task, God has anointed you through His Spirit for this for this call of following Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. Look at what it says in 2 Corinthians. It says, He has anointed us he anointed us in God. Jesus Christ has made this life possible. He anointed us in God. And He has also sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. How is it that I will follow Christ? How is it that I will live into this calling? It can't be something you worked up. It can't be something you came up with. There's got to be an anointing that has come from God. And what anointing it is. When a sinner's heart becomes aware that they need to leave their sin, that they need to forsake their sin. What an anointing when you confess that Jesus Christ is God's Son and He is your Savior and He will save you, me, you, Christians everywhere. We live under the same anointing, the anointing of God where He has called us and He has redeemed us. God has anointed you and He has anointed all believers to be part of a royal priesthood to be a part of a royal nation. Just as Jehu was raised up to be a royal king, God has called you and He has anointed you through Jesus Christ His Son to be His royal people. If you are glad that God's anointing power to call and save us and, and, and for Jesus Christ to complete the work, if you are glad when the blood of Jesus is anointed, when His, when his death is poured out for your sins that God calls you and saves you, say amen. There better be an anointing from God. There better be a calling from God. There better be God's seal upon you. You cannot seal yourself. You cannot save yourself, he says. But there is an anointing, we're told in Corinthians. And just as God has Jehu anointed for kingship, he takes those that confess, in, confess Jesus Savior and he anoints us as his royal people. So Jehu gets off to a great start. 
And Jehu uh, becomes a king, and a real king, a legitimate king, because God has anointed him as a Christian today. Or maybe if you're not a Christian today, and maybe today you sense God's call on your life, my friend, when you come and confess Jesus, you were anointed with the forgiveness of God. And so Jehu gets off to a great start. And Jehu is anointed, and we need to be anointed. If we've confessed Jesus as Savior, we are anointed with that forgiveness that only God can give. So we see Jehu's anointing, and that, that's good. And secondly, this morning we saw Jehu's zeal. He was anointed, and he carried out his royal activity, his calling as a king. He, he does it zealously, like so, so zealous that it's like, wow, this is not easy work, and he has poured himself into cutting off this line of Ahab and all the sin that they have done. Jehu's called to carry out a coup, right? We know what a coup is. It's when one government to topples another, and God has anointed Jehu to go out and carry out this great coup. But coups only work when power is seized quickly, and power is seized completely. The first task that Jehu has to do is he has to go to Jezreel, and he has to take out... Uh, the current king who's there. That can't be somebody else. He's got to do it because he's the new king and he's got to show that he is to replace the old king. And so this is not a task for anyone but Jehu. And he performs his task with zeal. And he zealously wipes out Ahab's descendants and Ahab's old friends and Ahab's advisors and his priests. He slaughters all the worshipers of Baal that he can get his hands on. Listen, if you have been anointed by God, then you need to zealously pursue, pursue what God desires for you to do. Listen, just as Jehu zealously stamped out the sin of Ahab, only you, only you, through God's anointing, can control your tongue. I can't control your tongue. Only you can control your tongue. Just like Jehu, he had to take the king out. That wasn't for somebody else, that was for him. If you've been anointed by God, if you've been saved by Jesus, if you've been sealed, I can't control your tongue, only you can. You need to zealously control your tongue. I can't control what you watch on your TV. If you've been anointed by God, that's your task. Only you can control what you watch on your TV. Students, I cannot control what videos you watch on your phone. Only you can do that. That is your calling to zealously stamp out uh, that sin. I can't control what you do with uh, somebody else's wife or somebody else's spouse and the kind of way you interact with other people of uh, the opposite sex in relationships. I can't control that. You, under God's anointing, must deal with that. I cannot control. Only you can control what you will do with the lust that rises up within you. Only you will control whether you get up for church on time for Spring Forward Sunday. Pat yourself on the back. Okay, that's it, because you're probably going to fall, fall off with the others. I can't control that. I couldn't control who would fight the battle this morning and who would give in and say, uh, not going to do it. No control. Only you, only you, if God has anointed and called you, only you can control whether or not you make the phone call to check on the sick. Only you can control whether you visit the widows. Only you can control whether you go to the hospital to see that person. Only you can control if you joyfully give to God's work. Only you can control whether or not you use your mu musical and teaching abilities or other gifts for God's service. Only you can control 
whether you use your finances to support those in missions or not. Today, some of you, some of us, are tired. You're tired. And you've been anointed, and you've been called, and you've been given a task to do, but the devil is telling you you've done enough. You've done enough, and it's time to stop, and it's time to slow down, it's time to not be so zealous about the work of God. Question. Anybody in this room ever heard of Eugene Ormandy? Anybody know who Eugene Ormandy is? Raise your hand. I didn't think so. We're not a very cultured bunch here in this church, all right? Eugene Ormandy was the conductor. Uh, he, he did some conducting. He was, you know, a conductor. And uh, he conducted for a while at the, the Philadelphia Symphony. The Philadelphia Symphony. Now, Philadelphia is a pretty big city. It's on the East Coast. You know, it's not New York. It's not New York, it's not Chicago, but Philadelphia is a pretty big place. And Eugene Ormandy was the conductor for the symphony. And I read about this guy. And I read about Eugene Ormandy. He's famous because Eugene Ormandy one time got so into conducting. I mean, tell it. could you imagine if this was Brother Cecil up there just waving his arms and getting into it? I mean, Eugene was so into conducting that while he was conducting the symphony one night, he threw his shoulder out of place. Threw it out of place. Now, I would li- if you would like to have seen that, raise your hand. How many sick, sick people are there? there? Thank you for being honest. I would love to have seen that. Can you imagine the zeal that he brought that night as he was waving those arms and doing his stuff? Can you imagine how energetic he was about the calling that God had given him? Now, if Cecil does that, we'll probably think he's crazy and we'll tackle him. And, you know, no. Amen? But Eugene was so into it. So zealous for directing that orchestra that he literally threw his shoulder out of place. My dad asked me a couple weeks ago. The boys' basketball season is over, so those, those illustrations are going to go away for a while until next year when they do new stuff. But, but my dad was telling me at the end of the season, he said, have you noticed what Owen's doing on the bench when he's not in the game? And I said, no, Dad, i got no idea. I'm too busy coaching. What is Owen doing? And Dad said, every time that Owen has to sit out, when he sits out, he, Dad said he doesn't sit down. He doesn't sit down. The whole quarter, he stands up at the bench and he goes, he's yelling at the other teammates, telling them what to do. Whole game. And so, so Dad had told me this. And so I looked over there and sure enough, the game after Dad told me this, I look over and little Owen is not sitting on the bench. He's up and he's going, come on, go that man. Come on, don't double dribble. There's one kid, Mason, I had to keep on getting her double dribble. Owen's over there going, Mason, stop double dribbling. Don't double dribble. He was zealous. Because he wanted to win. I know today some of you are tired, but you need to wake up because the battle is not over. It's not over. Nathaniel is in a battle. And he will continue to battle. The truth is, so are you. So am I. We are all in a battle. And we need to encourage one another to zealously complete the task that God has given each and every one of us. First, you've got to be anointed. First, you've got to have God's anointing. He has to save you. He has to seal you. But when He has done that, He has called you to a path. He has called you to a walk. He has called you to a kingdom. And you're a disciple in that kingdom. And there's a certain way to live and a certain way to, to, to relate to God. And He calls us and He anoints us and He, and he calls us to pursue with zeal the call that He has given us. And so we see Jehu 
He has a lot going for him. He's divinely anointed, and he begins by pursuing his task with zeal. But then finally, we see a third thing. And unfortunately, what will define Jehu in the eyes of faith is not how he began, but how he finishes. Say that again. What defines Jehu in the walk of faith is not how he started, it's how he ends. He starts with a bang. I mean, there are few Bible characters in the Bible who begin the way Jehu does. No holds barred. He has to. Jehu has to go all out because if he doesn't stamp out this sin in Israel right from the get-go, Ahab's followers will rise right back up. The, the prophets of Baal, the people of Baal, they will come right back. And so he zealously goes after his work. And so there's Jehu's anointing, and there's Jehu's zeal. But then there is the way that Jehu finishes, and this is Jehu's failure. Look at verse 29 and 31. King Joram went back to be healed in Jezreel of his wounds, which the Syrians had given him at Ramah when he fought against Huz... Oh, that's verse 8. Oops, sorry, chapter 8. So it says uh, in verse 10... 29, I'm sorry, it said, Jehu departed not from after them. He continued to do some of the old sins. What? He let the golden calves that were Bethel and Dan remain. Verse 31, And Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. For he departed not from the sins of Jeroboam which made Israel to sin. There is his anointing and there is his zeal. But then there is his failure to finish. While Jehu brought zeal to some task, he ignored some other things that needed to be done. While Jehu brought zeal to his task, he apparently did not immerse himself in God's Word. It says there, he didn't do that. He didn't walk in the law of God. He did not immerse himself in the law of God. Sometimes Christians lose their zeal. Sometimes old Christians lose their zeal. Many times new Christians are really zealous about some things, and I've seen this over and over again, they're really zealous about some things to start, but they don't stay immersed in God's Word. And they either quit, because they don't stay immersed in that Word, and they don't stay immersed with God's people, and so they, they quit. Or I've seen new Christians that they start with zeal, and as you try to show them that that's good, and you need to be zealous about that, but there are other parts of the Christian life. I've met some Christians that they never immerse themselves in the rest of Scripture. All they care about is this one thing that they're zealous about to begin with. And I've watched Christians like that burn out, burn out. Because we don't need just some of God's Word. We need all of God's Word. Amen? It says he didn't walk in the law of the Lord. Compromise is a killer. Compromise is a killer. And this morning... A lot of us face the battle of Jehu. I think most of us probably identify a lot more with Jehu than we do Elisha. We identify with Jehu because we're zealous and we're excited and then we get tired and we compromise and we drift away from God's Word. This morning, if you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, it begins with anointing. God desires to anoint you today as one of His... What do you mean by anoint me? He desires to anoint you as one of His children. He desires to seal you as one of His. And if you've never been anointed by God, if you've never confessed your sins and confessed Jesus as Savior, 
and you're not sealed. It, it takes confessing your sin and confessing Jesus as Savior, and you get that anointing that you are one of His royal people. If it still excites you that you're part of God's people, say amen. That's how the anointing starts. And some of you today are maybe older in years and you think, it's too late for me to get this anointing. It's too late for me to confess Jesus as Savior. It's too late for me to do any of that. No, it's not. Because what Jehu reminds us is, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. And so if you're a senior saint today and you say, it's too late for me to begin this journey, it's not too late. It's not about how you start. It's about how you finish. I know today we're tired. And I know today you're worn out because it's that Sunday. It's that tired Sunday. Maybe, just maybe, because you were faithful to come, God has given this message just for you because He knows you're on the brink of finishing strong like Elisha or compromising like Jehu. Complete the task that God has given you. Stand with me this morning. I'm going to give a simple invitation today. If you feel the Holy Spirit calling you, wooing you, to come and confess Jesus as Savior and Lord, I encourage you to come now and do that. Maybe there's a sin, maybe there's a battle, maybe you're one of these with physical problems, several people found out new physical things and you want to pray today and have others pray with you. Whatever it is, if you feel God calling you, this open area in the front is for you to come and pray today. You just do as God leads. Lord, I ask right now that you would be with this message and you would use it to encourage us and to strengthen us, strengthen us in our walk with you. Lord, help us to complete the task that you have given us. Help us to zealously through Your power, stamp out sin in our life and to worship You with all our heart. Lord, I ask this in Jesus' name today. Amen.